About 25 years ago, some vandals wrote in very large letters some graffiti on the side of a Presbyterian church building in North Belfast. And uh, I remember a number of months later, the, the Presbyterian minister talking to us, and uh, what the, the vandals wrote was not just any old vandalism. It was written by local loyalists who were determined to, to issue a threat to this Presbyterian minister because he was helping everybody in the neighborhood. And what it said in very large letters, I think it was about six feet high and paint on the side of this building, was Reverend such and such loves Catholics. And I remember this Presbyterian minister talking to us and saying that although we didn't appreciate the graffiti and didn't appreciate the implied threat behind the graffiti, he said that strangely he could see the hand of God in it because any big statement that this was in the midst of the community that accused him of loving people couldn't be a bad thing. In fact, he could see the fact that no matter what it said or who it said that he loved, then that would be, uh, that would be a very encouraging statement of truth. That whether it said that he loved uh, whatever group of people, uh, ethnic minority or, or people group or whatever it happened to be, he thought, well, that was a good thing. He took it as sort of a, sort of a hopefully never a truer word spoken, that in a way he said it showed that there must be something right that was happening in and through the church community. Often things happen in our lives that we don't want to happen. Threats, sickness, death, and disappointment. And the account that we had from John's gospel in chapter 11, all of those things are present. And yet John's gospel story is one of good news. That's what gospel means. But wonderfully, John doesn't want to shy away from the grief and the tears and the threats and the sickness and the death. Because in the midst of all that, he recognizes that there is a living hope. And the reason why he knows that is because he's experienced and he's met the living hope. The religious leaders, as they gather together, say that in frustration, they want to start to issue threats, and they're going to start plotting to kill Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest, says, do you not know anything at all? Do you not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation would perish? Caiaphas didn't intend those words to be ones that were ones of truth declaration, but they were, just like the graffiti on the side of the building, it was an inspired declaration of truth unbeknownst to Caiaphas, just like the young person or the person, whatever age they were, that painted that graffiti on the side of that building in North Belfast. What it actually was, was an inspired declaration of truth even though the perpetrator had a malicious intent. John says, Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but for all the scattered people of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. The reality that John knew 
John's Gospel may well be the last of the four Gospels written. What, what John knew, what his readers by and large would have known, is that less than 40 years after the death of Jesus, after the time when God has sent His Son to warn His people, to urge them away from disaster, 40, less than 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there was a, a Jewish uprising, and the Romans crushed it mercilessly. They destroyed the temple. Today, we know that there's only one part of one wall remaining. They left Jerusalem a smoking ruin, and they left the Jewish people in utter shreds. All these are signs that the Lord was in the midst of His people, at His redemptive work in the midst of the dirt and the hatred and the oppression and the threats and the sickness and the suffering of the world. John's gospel itself, as we've seen, is a series of signs, and the raising of Lazarus is the greatest sign yet that we've seen. And yet the reason why we had the whole chapter 11 read today is because the raising of Lazarus is not primarily about the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus is a sign that points to the two great signs at the very end of John's gospel, the two greatest signs of all that God is at work in the world, the crucifixion and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. All of us encounter that dirt and disappointment and there is sickness and disease and, and ultimately also death. All of us encounter these things. And we may well wonder, wh where is God in that? Is God interested in that? And what the Gospel of John is telling us and what the, this account of Lazarus is declaring to us is that Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh, that He is the one who has come to stand in the midst of His people, and not to stand aloof or aloft from the suffering of people, but actually to enter into the place of tears, to enter into the place of suffering, and even, John will show us, to enter into the place of death. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus realized and encountered this very clearly in their own life, in this moment whenever Lazarus becomes ill and dies. And Mary and Martha are left wondering, where is God in the midst of this? And what John is telling us is that do we have eyes to see what God is doing? Do we have faith so that we can understand where God is in the midst of our personal suffering and suffering throughout the world? Everything depends on whether we're willing to trust in the love of God even when our hearts are breaking. Sometimes we might say, well, it's easy to believe in God when things are going well. But how does that verse 
trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. How does that work in our lives when our hearts are utterly broken? And so Mary and Martha face this situation as they discover their brother, brother Lazarus has become ill. And they send word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. And when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was for two more days. And he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. What was Jesus doing in the midst of those two days? John doesn't state it. It isn't clear from the passage. But John wants us as those who are having our eyes open to the work of God to understand exactly what's going on. And the reality is that Jesus in those two days was praying fervently to his Father. This was no light decision to go to Bethany, which was just a few miles outside Jerusalem, to go back into Judea, because the last time he was there, it looked as if he wasn't going to make it out alive. It looked as if he was going to be stoned. And Jesus knows that if he responds to this call for help, he's going back into the lion's den. He's going back into the fiery furnace. And not only will he be concerned about himself, he would have also be concerned about his disciples because they could easily stone his disciples along with him. And as we hear, he could also cause uh, trouble and difficulty for Lazarus and his two sisters. What we learn at the end of this passage is as he acts that even then Lazarus' life becomes one that's under threat. This is no light decision, but even more than that, Jesus in the midst of prayer understands that this unexpected happening that has come before him is one that is linked to his own death, is linked to his own path to do the work that God has called him to do. He knows that somehow, whatever it is that his Father wants to do by the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the situation of Lazarus being ill, and he senses also dying, he understands will be tied up part and parcel with his own life, his own death, his own resurrection. And so what John doesn't write, but what he wants us to understand by the whole of the gospel is this. As Jesus prays in these two days to know what it is the Father wants him to do, when it is the Father wants him to do it, he senses the Lord, the Father, saying to him that Lazarus is going to die, that this will be for the glory of God, and that somehow Lazarus's death is going to be so closely linked with his own death. And so he thinks and prays and reflects very carefully what the Father wants him to do. He is guided by the voice, the inner voice of the Father to him as to what he should do in those days. And one of the things that he is praying as he realizes the Father is going to do something which is utterly amazing is that in the midst of all this, he is praying 
that even when Lazarus dies, his body will not decay. There are two miracles that really happen in the midst of this story. The first is this, Lazarus dies, and because of the prayer of Jesus, his body does not decay. The second miracle is that Lazarus comes back to consciousness at the moment whenever Jesus calls him out of the tomb. John is a wonderful gospel writer in which he so often doesn't state what is happening. He wants us to piece together the signs and the clues to understand what is going on. So when Jesus speaks to Martha and then to Mary and comes to the tomb, He comes having prayed for two days prior to departure, for two days on the road, that God will do what God wants to do that this will be for the working of not just the blessing of Lazarus and his family, but also for the whole world, for the Jewish people, and also for every human being in history. And at the core of his prayer is that the body of Lazarus, although it is stone-cold dead in the tomb, in the midst of a hot climate, is not going to decay. And in the midst of that time of prayer, and I imagine he's praying about it even on that two-day journey to Bethany, he's also praying that when he dies, that as the Old Testament has said, the Holy One of God's body will not see decay. This is a moment when the Father is going to encourage the Son that what He can do in Lazarus's life, He is also going to do in the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. His son is going to die. His body is not going to decay. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. So Martha comes to Jesus with her, if only. If only you had been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. But, Lord, we know that even now we trusted you can do something. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day, says Martha. It's classic Jewish belief that the end of history, as the curtain of current history comes down, that there would be this general resurrection of all the people of God would be raised to life at the final day for judgment. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, says Martha. I believe you in the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. At the start of John's gospel, we heard those wonderful words. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. It's all about this new beginning, this new life that has come about and has appeared through Jesus Christ. And here at the very center of the gospel is what this has all been leading to. The reality is that Jesus Christ is the resurrection. The resurrection is not just a truth, it's a person who is the truth. That the resurrection, life itself, 
the author and core and source of life is actually embodied and standing in the body of a man, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully human. And in this moment, he is standing before grieving Martha. Martha goes back to the house. It's noted a lot for her to take in, a lot for us to take in. She tells Mary Jesus is outside the town, and Jesus waits there again, no doubt prompted by the Father to stay where He is, to stay on the edge of the village. Mary now comes out, and she too expresses her, if only you had been here. And she, with a cortege of mourners, breaks down in front of Jesus. And something amazing happens in this moment. The resurrection Himself, Jesus, weeps. God cries with the crying of the world. This is what John has been talking about all along. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Not to stay separate from us, but to come completely one of us, to enter into the dirt and the grime, to step into the midst of the failure, to step into the midst of the sinfulness and brokenness and also the sickness and disease and even the death of the world, to become one with us, that we who believe in Him may become one with Him. Jesus weeps. He shares and bears the tears, and He will do so to the point of death itself. And then there's this amazing moment when Jesus is led to the tomb, and He weeps. And perhaps hard even to see where the tomb and the stone are as he laments and weeps bitterly, not only in realizing that Lazarus is dead, but also that every human being, because of our fall from grace, will face death, that he himself will face a moment of death in which he takes not only the griefs but also the sin of the whole world on his shoulders. And in the midst of weeping, he gives a command, take away the stone. Martha, of course, and others will be concerned in this hot climate, there will be a stench that will come from the tomb if the stone is rolled away. But Jesus has been praying for four days that the body of Lazarus will not see decay. And so the stone is rolled away, and what John doesn't tell us, but what he wants us clearly to understand is this. In that moment, as Jesus is weeping, he knows his prayer has been answered. Why? Because no smell comes from the tomb. That's why he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus knows the miracle pretty well has already happened. Yes, Lazarus is dead, 
but his body has not decayed. And he knows that what God has done for Lazarus, he knows in a matter of days, he will also do for himself, for his son, Jesus Christ. That they may believe. That sums up the reason why God sent his son, Jesus, the reason why John has written his gospel that we may believe that He is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in believing we may have life in His name. You and I know the purposes of God are mysterious. The question for us is, do we have the eyes of faith to trust that in the midst of the mess and dirt of the world and the mess and dirt that we ourselves get ourselves into, that God is in the midst of it all, at work, seeking to do the redemptive work of bringing the very best out of the very worst. That's what the cross is all about. So I want to encourage us today, in the midst of the places of pain, the personal pain, the familial pain, the community pain, the national and international pain, to come to the Lord with our if only. What is your if only that you would long to come to the Lord with today? Lord, if only you had sorted this out, if only you would be in the midst of this, if only you had done something, if only you would do something, then there wouldn't be this mess, there wouldn't be these tears. Lord, if only. And the beauty of what John is telling us is this, he wants us to come. He wants us like Martha and Mary to come to him and to say, if only. And even to do it in the midst of our own tears, knowing the fact that if we do so and come to the Lord, He will be weeping too with us. Because whatever breaks our hearts about the mess of this world and our lives, it breaks His heart more. What is your if only that you want to express to God this morning? And as we do that, and as we trust and trust in God's love, we should be encouraged and know that even before this place of disappointment or threat or sickness or death happened, even before that, God in Jesus Christ was already praying for us. He already knew what was coming before it even happened. Just as Christ knew that before Lazarus died, he was going to die, and he entered into the place of prayer. Know that Christ is praying for you. He has been praying for you before the suffering started. And know the fact that as you weep and express your if only, he weeps with you. Corrie ten Boom, a Dutch lady, Christian woman, who suffered terribly in a World War II concentration camp. Her sister Betsy died of starvation. She herself was treated brutally. And often, Kari would stand up and she would show a piece of tapestry or weaving and show the underside. And it was always, it looked a mess. You couldn't tell what it was. It was full of knots and loose threads. And then she would show the picture of the upper side of the tapestry or weaving. And she would say, we can only see the underside. God 
is creating a crown for the glory of His name and for the glory of the person who is wearing it. And she would read this poem. It's called The Weaving. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why the dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares, nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Going to God, trusting in him, trusting in his love is not just about survival, it's also about thriving. It's also about giving glory to God and seeing miracles happen. It's about whenever we go to God with the brokenness that's in our hands, to know that as we wait, as we pray, as we wait, as we pray, that we also point to Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. And so we do pray for healing. We do pray for miracles. We do pray for what is our dream scenario to work out and we do pray and keep on praying. And as we encounter people in the place of pain and brokenness and lostness and sickness, we point them towards Jesus. We point them towards the one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who can bring healing, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental healing, because he can make all things new. And we also come and as Jesus did, we recognize the importance so often when we meet someone whose life is broken, someone who is in a place of deep mourning, that sometimes the thing for us to do is to say nothing and just to weep with them. Sometimes the most powerful thing we can do is just be there just to be a sign of hope, to be a person who prays, that as the person is weeping, if only, that we simply sit with them. And when the time comes, if that time emerges, we point them to the one who is the author of life himself, the one who weeps with them and with us in the midst of our if-onlys the one who has spoken to us, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? For those who do, there is a crown waiting for us, a crown that we cannot fully see at the moment but God is at work in the midst of this world, working in us and working through us to bring glory to His name through His Son, our Savior, 
Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we bring before you our if-onlys today, our, our if-onlys of those we know and, and of this nation. Lord, we know that even before the trouble came, you knew all about it. Father, today we pray, work your purpose out. We trust in your love. We trust that you are at work. We trust that even death cannot thwart your plans. We trust that in and through you, all will be well, that you're making all things new. Give us strength, give us patience, give us faith, and help us to show your love and your compassion to those who are in the midst of tears, who are in the midst of if only. May we, by our silence, by our prayers, by our words and by our actions, be living signs who point to the one who alone is life, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.